everyone. Uh, just a quick heads up before this episode starts. I realized that the first 10 minutes of this interview, I did not click record when I was on the call with uh, Kamal. But don't worry, I uh, got him to summarize the first 10 minutes at the very end of the episode. So here's Kamal and enjoy. These fish oil calculators online, you would put in your age, you know, your weight, that kind of stuff. It would spit out, take five grams or 10 grams or even more a day. Um, now we know that fish oil is highly um, oxidizable. So you want to take as little as you need to or none at all. Um, and this is also the case with most other things. So always start as low as you can with supplements and then titrate up. Okay. Um, so if someone wanted to, like, say they had gut issues should they like first go to their doctor and get you know their opinion or should they kind of play detective and say you know maybe i should go get some probiotics see how i feel and kind of go from there so always start with your doctor with the caveat that most primary care physicians general practitioners pretty much won't know shit about gut health so the the reason you need to go is not because they can play detective it's because they can eliminate pathological causes. So you want to go into the doctor to make sure you don't have like C. diff, you don't have some other weird infection, you don't have some structural abnormality. Um, basically, you don't have something really wrong with you. Now, once that's done, they could refer you to a GI doctor who knows more stuff, but even then they won't often know a lot about gastrointestinal health, but still go to them because they've done residency and fellowship and they know more than you do. Now, once you've covered your bases with that, then you can start doing your real detective work. Um, you can suggest to your physician that it might be good to order certain tests if they're not already doing them. Um, you know, don't force them, of course, because again, they know more than you. But then do things like try certain probiotics. Um, there's only, I don't know how many, 20 to 30 probiotics that have been rigorously tested. So you can see which ones work for various conditions like ulcerative colitis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, um, that kind of thing. And then try those, try those at low levels, see what happens. But more important than those is look up what works for different conditions food-wise. So sometimes you want to eat a lot of vegetables and fruits. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes uh, a lot of fat or not a lot of fat might impact your um, gut health. So see what works, see what doesn't, and just make sure you cover your bases first. Perfect. Um, going back to the fish oils, say someone is kind of debating maybe I should be taking them or can I just increase my diet of you know actual fish? Would that be the same thing or not? So if you eat fatty fish two or three times a week, there's pretty much no reason to take fish oil. Um, people will take fish oil because it has been shown to help certain conditions. Uh, like for example, fish oil could possibly help major depression. Fish oil could possibly help anxiety. It could possibly help um, improve certain intermediate outcomes for cardiovascular health like triglycerides. That being said, uh, fish oil hasn't been tested against fish consumption for those indications. So um, if you're going to take fish oil for something, then I'd say take it for four to eight weeks, see if it helps that condition or that intermediate outcome. If it doesn't, then just stick with eating fish. Um, and the reason it isn't complicated is just that fish tastes good generally. Most people like the taste of fish and fatty fish especially taste good. So if you don't like to cook, if you don't like the taste of fish, if fish is too expensive, then think about fish oil because it is good to 
boost your adherence level. And it's a lot easier to take fish oil every day than to remember to take two to three or more servings of cooked fish a day, which I totally understand because it's not important what's ideal. It's not important what most people do. It's most important that you do some minimum level of it, which is well, why taking fish oil is okay. Uh, because in an ideal world, most people would eat their fish, but we don't live in an ideal world. Uh, do you think, or is it even like recorded at all, that uh, someone could actually overdose on taking too many fish oil supplements? Yeah, so you can. It's not out there in the literature much. The way that it happens is basically fish oil can act as a blood thinner. If you have a bleeding condition, like I have a minor bleeding condition um, that I've known about since I was 18 years old. Um, luckily, I never overdosed on the fish, but you know, if I did, if I took a ton of fish oil capsules every day to try to lower inflammation or whatever, that could possibly have been a bad thing uh, as far as bleeding goes. And some people go their whole lives without knowing that they have a bleeding issue or some other issue or it might not be good to take a bunch of fish oil. So like I found out when I had my wisdom teeth taken out and I bled a lot, otherwise I would have no idea. So um, basically there's almost no reason to take a ton of any supplement unless it's just bound to be neutral. Like some supplement, vitamin K2, for example, doesn't really have an upper limit, but that's an extremely rare circumstance. Okay. Now I was always uh, gonna wonder about, you know, protein powders, you know, is way better, is hemp better, like a vegan type, like what should you look out for for choosing a good protein powder to kind of get to your goals? So um, first, first things first, if you're thinking about taking protein powder, then um, think about it a lot if you don't eat meat. If you're super jacked and you're not eating enough, um, if you're older and, you know, let's say you're 60, 70 or even older, those are all reasons why you might want to take protein powder. So uh, starting at the end and working backwards, if you're older, then having more protein means that you're more likely to have more muscle, which means that you're more likely to survive like a broken hip or something like that without being stuck in the hospital and potentially getting an infection and potentially dying. So it's much more important for older people to consider protein powder than younger people. The reason younger people consider protein powder or some weird food bar with powder or whatever is to look better, but health is more important. So. So older people, yeah, protein powder, great. Um, if you're really jacked and you work out a lot and you're not getting enough food, then yeah, protein powder because um, while you don't need more than like, let's say a, a gram of protein per pound per day for most people, um, some people just work out a ton. You know, they're triathletes, plus they work out in the gym, plus whatever, um, and maybe at their workplace, they don't have time to eat lunch all the time. So getting enough protein, especially after workout, might, might uh, warrant taking some protein powder. And then the third instance is if you're a vegan or vegetarian, or if you have some restricted diet for some reason, then protein powder can ensure that you get enough protein daily. Now for everybody else, not in those categories, you might not need to take protein powder because usually people take protein to supplement their daily protein intake without actually measuring their daily protein intake. So go to some tool um, you know, we're not advocating for any of these because examine.com is officially objective and uh, unrelated to any product, but MyFitnessPal, Chronometer or Chronometer, however you pronounce it, um, anything where you can track your daily food intake is great because track, you know, two days a week, weekdays, 
and one weekend day for let's say a month. See how much protein you're eating. If it's 70 grams, 80 grams or more, you probably don't need to take protein powder. But if you're below that, um, or you just have some convenience issues, like I said, if, at, if you work out in the morning and you can't like eat some real meal after your workout, then consider protein powder. Um, and then, you know, just look for a protein powder that isn't super cheap, that has fairly high quality ingredients without additives, um, and that you like the taste of. Now, is there like a better protein powder out there? Like if you had to compare it between whey, casein or hemp or whatever protein they make out of, is there benefits to one or the other or do they all kind of have their own purpose? So whey and casein are sort of kings as far as the amount of research goes because everybody, including the dairy industry, researches them. So there's a lot of evidence for benefits. Um, soy and various other complete vegetarian powders, uh, for example, uh, pea protein mixes that have pea and other uh, vegetarian or vegan proteins work fairly well um, and not a huge amount differently than uh, various dairy-based protein. Um, and then some sort of like raw proteins aren't so complete and aren't so uh, bioavailable, but they're still good because people who eat raw diets can eat them. So there's not a lot of bad proteins, but there are proteins that are good for certain indications. So for example, um, there's a medical food product that is a whey protein that has glutathione precursors in it. Now glutathione is the or one of the most important endogenous antioxidant systems. So it's good to boost that, especially if you have various medical conditions. So um, in that case, rather than getting that food product, which is super expensive, it could be a good idea to get cold processed whey protein, which is always more expensive. And it has to have the cysteine intact, um, which is uh, two different amino acids joined together. Now, that promotes glutathione production in the body, so it could be better than just regular whey protein. And then people who have certain digestive issues might do better with whey protein isolate because whey protein concentrate could have some lactose in it, which people who are very, very uh, sensitive might have reactions to. And now other than that, most proteins taste good. I tend to go towards ones that are a bit more natural for no great reason, but uh, you know, brands that aren't super cheap and don't have a lot of ingredients tend to be better. Gotcha. Um, what's your opinion about like say multivitamins? And I think a big brand that almost everybody gets is like the Centrum. Does it have enough what you need as a multivitamin? Should you be taking more what the bottle actually says? Like, So there's a big pro and a big con to Centrum and most multis, which is, so the pro is that there are a lot of people in the US and Canada that don't get many micronutrients at all, and it's probably better for them to get a multivitamin than nothing. But for everybody else, it's better to start inductively so start off by seeing what nutrients you're missing from your diet and then go on. And I'm not just saying that because it's good to know what you're eating. There's actually reasons behind that. So for example, um, when I first entered grad school, um, this was in 2004, uh, there, there was a big study that came out on vitamin E. And it was a meta-analysis that showed that high intakes of vitamin E might increase mortality. So, you know, news and media was all over that because vitamin E was before that seen to be a fairly benign antioxidant. So it turns out that we don't actually know if vitamin E is good or bad to take every day, but we don't 
know in which cases it might be bad. Um, and then I actually ended up asking the doctor because he randomly ended up being my personal physician um, at on campus, um, and, and he didn't know because he was basically just a physician, statistician type person. So given that we don't know reasons why in certain populations certain nutrients on a daily basis in high amounts might be bad, it's probably better to err on the side of getting most things from food unless you're missing them from your diet. So things that a lot of people might be missing are things that were missing because the soil is different in modern life. So, you know, 100, 200 years ago, soil had certain minerals in it. And then if you fast forward 100, 200 years to now, farmers are forced to increase their crop yields in order to keep their prices low. So they have to use fertilizers and sometimes pesticides. And that means that things like magnesium and selenium aren't in high amounts in the foods we eat anymore. So you might want to supplement with magnesium sometimes selenium because selenium content varies widely depending on where in the country you live. Um, and then also certain things like iodine, like we don't eat a lot of seafood or sea vegetables uh, compared to certain populations. And iodine is fairly benign um, and could in some cases help thyroid health. So minerals are something that might be good to look at and you know certain vitamins, but not a ton of them. So most people don't get enough vitamin D simply because if you live above a certain latitude, you just don't get much sunshine. Um, so there's a very small collection of vitamin and minerals that you might want to especially pay attention to. So work inductively rather than getting an arbitrary 100% of the RDA of every vitamin and mineral, see what you're missing and then go from there. Now with iodine, like I think I've either read this or saw this on Facebook, but uh, I think for a while they're um, salt companies were taking iodine out because they thought it was linked to some sort of health issue and now they think that most people are actually deficient in iodine so yeah so yeah. a lot of people myself included eat non-iodized salt now the reason why I eat non-iodized salt is um, not because I, I don't like processed salt I love it I really like salt a lot but um, it's because my mom gave me some like uh sea salt that's a little bit sticky but also tastes good and has a different texture. Now there's other people who claim that the minerals and natural salt that aren't iodized are like super beneficial. It's probably not the case because the small amount of natural minerals and some random salt are in such low levels that you're probably not going to drive any health benefits at all from them. So um, iodized salt is fine. You know it's not going to harm you at all and it will provide iodine. Now. For people who eat weird diets, uh, that could provide enough iodine to prevent deficiency. But um, iodine from seafood and iodine from you know high dose supplements, it's usually beneficial above and beyond the iodine and iodized salt because people just don't get very much iodine at all. So even if you meet the sufficiency level of the government guidelines, a higher iodine level might even benefit you. Like there was a saying. I don't know how many hundreds of years ago that um, I don't remember what the saying is actually, but the um, <laughs> physicians would sometimes say, you know, if you can't figure out what's wrong with the patient, first try iodine. Now that doesn't mean you should try iodine for every condition. It just means that because we're low in iodine generally and we don't need a lot of seafood, iodine could be one of the first things to look at along with magnesium. What's another major like deficiency that us humans would probably have in vitamins and minerals in your opinion? So magnesium is one that's talked about a lot, probably because it's true. Um, 
And the reason is that we don't get a lot of magnesium from our soil and people also don't eat whole foods a lot because processed foods tend not to have a lot of magnesium. Second reason is that when people do take multivitamins, then it's the magnesium is often in the magnesium oxide form, which is absorbed at a much lower level than any other magnesium product. So any magnesium chelate, um, you know, basically any magnesium at all, magnesium citrate, whatever is better than magnesium oxide. Magnesium oxide in high levels is actually used as a laxative. So if you take a typical multivitamin with magnesium oxide, it's not going to be a laxative, but it, it won't be absorbed very well. So um, magnesium, is because it's at a low level in most people, is a decent thing to look at. But it's also important because a lower level of magnesium could be one of the core issues behind somebody's sleep issues or behind somebody's testosterone issues. So those are huge issues for a lot of people, especially males. So magnesium is a great thing to look at because it doesn't have a lot of side effects. Perfect. Um, I was going to ask you, like, would, uh, what was it? What's the, like with vitamin D, there's like a lot of talk back and forth that, you know, maybe you should supplement during like the colder months. Maybe you shouldn't even do it at all. Maybe you're just going to have, you know, expensive urine from taking all the, you know, supplements that you buy off the shelf. Like what's your take on the whole vitamin D deficiency? So I supplement during winter months. Um, I think the latitude cutoff is between San Francisco and Raleigh, North Carolina, anywhere above that. For a given period of time, you don't get any vitamin D even if you're in the sun. Now, the more north you go, the wider that interval is where you don't get any vitamin D. So if you're in San Francisco like me, then I'm not sure which months, but it's not that many months that you won't get vitamin D. If you're at the border of Canada and the U.S., it's more months. If you're more north than that, it's even more months. So um, it doesn't hurt to supplement vitamin D during the winter. Uh, because it's not like you're taking it all year round. The side effects are only seen if you're taking a lot all year, all the time, and those are pretty minor side effects usually. Um, that being said, people who have very high vitamin D levels and very low tend to have higher heart disease rates. So somewhere in between is always good. Now, there's no reason not to get your vitamin D through sunshine. Um, now, even if you're pale, even if you have a history of skin cancer, all it means is that you have to be extra careful. So it usually doesn't hurt just to get a couple or more minutes of sunshine. Um, you know, nature built in in our skin a great um, sort of stopgap, which is if you're darker like me, it takes a lot longer to get sunburn. So you can stay in the sunshine for a lot longer and, and get vitamin D because it takes longer to get the vitamin D. If you're very pale, if you have a lot of freckles, then yes, I understand wanting to avoid sunshine and I don't blame you for just taking vitamin D and avoiding sunshine or just you know slathering on the sunblock. But that being said, um, it takes you a lot less time to get vitamin D. So being in the sunlight just for a few minutes or less to get some vitamin D and then putting on the sunscreen, I think is a fairly good middle of the road solution. Um, and for everybody else who tans okay and who watches out for you know, skin cancer, getting their screenings. Um, I think getting a low and then increasingly high amount of sunshine is a good idea. So like people who live in Hawaii, people who live in the south of France, whatever, um, they don't typically, I think, have higher skin cancer rates. They have a little bit higher vitamin D and it's because when it's really hot out, they, they do stay inside, but they do get some minimum level during you know the months that people go outside. So I think supplementation is good and being outside, both are good. 
Yeah, I definitely fall under the category of short time in the sun. Like, I do not tan. I just burn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel for people like you because the sun is great and having to worry about it sucks. But um, there's benefits of being outside um, other than vitamin D, which is good because if you put on the sunblock, you don't get vitamin D, but you do get some blue light into your eyes, which increases alertness. So it's a good idea during the work day to go outside and, you know, get a few or more minutes of sunshine because it helps you be more alert and be better cognitively during the day. Um, and then also if you even spend a little bit of time outside without sunscreen, then you can get increase in endorphins and nitric oxide production and that kind of thing from just some sun exposure to your skin. Now, what's your take on like B vitamins for more energy or just supplements in general giving you more energy? It's pretty much bullshit uh, with a <laughs> caveat, which is, you know, if you get a B12 injection, it's not going to help you get more energy other than a placebo effect unless you're vegan. Um, and B vitamins are involved in energy metabolism, but B vitamins are the most fortified and enriched vitamin product out there. So because B vitamins take up no space and don't change the taste of anything, um, people who make, you know, processed food put B vitamins in everything. And if you take a multi, it's going to have a ton of B, B vitamins. So most people aren't that low in B vitamins, but, um, People have energy issues that have been clinically diagnosed, like chronic fatigue syndrome. It might be worth playing around with B vitamins. Um, and then there's a few other very limited cases. But for the most part, B vitamins are not the vitamins most people should look, look out for. So like even those, um, like I think naturopaths usually use them, like the, um, like the slow drip, like vitamin B shots or whatever they give them. Like do those work at all? Do they have any kind of place and time for them? I don't think so, because if you're going to get um, an injection or infusion, get something you can't easily get through your diet. So you can so easily get pretty much every B vitamin through your diet that there's no reason to get an injection or infusion unless you have really interesting gut issues and can't absorb anything. If you are to get something, uh, I don't know, vitamin C maybe, because it's hard to get that much vitamin C through diet because your body absorbs less and less as you get higher and higher amounts. Uh, but even then paying a large amount for vitamin C infusion is usually not a good use of somebody's money. Um, sometimes uh, naturopathic doctors or normal doctors inject glutathione precursors. You know, there's something called Myers cocktail. There's other things they inject. Um, you know, if, if you're already fairly healthy or if you're unhealthy and you've tried you know, if you made a, a good faith attempt to try to correct your sleep and other things, yeah, go ahead and try an injection or infusion. But for most people, I'd say it's a huge waste of money. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of look for the uh, the easy way out because if, you know, maybe the root cause of low energy is, yeah, they're not getting enough sleep, they're not exercising and they're eating like shit. So let me just get this injection and I'll, I should feel better. Yeah, almost always. Um, you know, like people who listen to this, I'd say if you have sleep issues, usually people either have tried a healthy diet, but for not long enough, um, in which case, keep keep this in mind. When you eat a healthy diet, it's great. The issue is that different tissues in the body turn over at different rates. So like red blood cells turn over quickly, white blood cells turn over more slowly, fat and our adipose tissue turns over very slowly. So 
if you start eating a diet that is higher in natural fats like uh, coconuts, olives, that kind of stuff, and lower in uh, weirdo polyunsaturated processed fats like uh, cheap corn oil blends and that kind of thing, it's great. But you have to do it for a really long time because the fatty acids in adipose tissue take months and years to turn over. So you're not going to see an immediate effect of changing your fat intake. And that might be, you know, what's correlated with your inflammation because your body uses fatty acids that are liberated from cell walls to uh, impact different inflammatory pathways. So you're going to have to eat healthy for a really long time. So on the one hand, it's like, oh, that sucks, you know. I'm going to have to eat healthy for a long time to see any change and how can I keep this motivation up? On the other hand, it's this uncharted area. A lot of people think, oh, I've eaten this healthy diet for a long time. I didn't do anything. No, try harder and longer. You don't have to eat like, you know, 100% clean all the time. But if you eat natural foods for a long enough period of time, over the course of months, you should see some change. You know, there is room to improve. You just have to eat moderately healthy for a really long time. Yeah, I think most people just don't want to put in the hard work to see the benefit and they're constantly looking for, you know, the next pill or the next diet or the next whatever. Yeah, and it's, I feel bad for people because, um, you know, it, when you weigh more, your body wants to eat more than thinner people. It's extremely hard when you're at, you know, 200, 250, 300 pounds to consistently eat less over a period of time because of hormones. And don't let anybody tell you that, you know, oh, it's just, uh, you know, pay attention to your calories. No, it's easy for people who are at a healthy weight to say, but I'm here to tell you that if you stick at it for long enough, even if you're not consistently losing weight, as long as you're not plateauing for several weeks or more, you will get healthier. You know, I've seen it. Um, my two or three experiences working with patients at clinics, one was an obesity clinic where the people with good outcomes basically took a really long time to be really committed to at least a moderate level of health. So you don't have to avoid eating, you know, that piece of cake on your birthday or a cookie on a Friday or, you know, even pizza once or twice a week. You just have to be at a moderate level for a long time and you probably will feel better. Definitely. Um, what's your take on like pre-workout supplements to kind of, you know, give you more energy in the short term? Are they even worth it? I think for most people, uh, it's useless. So people who look for a supplement that helps them with energy or the pump, um, usually could better spend that money and time on something else because basically there's a few supplements that could help you eke out a few more reps. The number one being creatine, but creatine actually can help you build muscle. Whereas the other ones that help you with energy or with an extra rep or two don't help you build muscle. So why boost your energy when it doesn't help the bottom line? Now, that being said, there is another supplement that, that might help with health and muscle, which is uh, nitrates. So beets or beet juice or kale juice or something like that um, can help increase nitric oxide levels in the blood, which could help you uh, increase your output at the gym, which could help you increase uh, your muscle mass. But it's not the first thing most people should look out. If you're going to um, go for beet or kale juice, do it because of that reason plus cardiovascular health because uh, increasing blood flow in the body is generally good for heart health. But in general, things that boost energy are a waste of money. Okay. Um Beet juice sounds disgusting, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you really have to doctor up the beet juice because uh, beet juice in and of itself 
is an extremely acquired taste. Definitely. Unfortunately, no. Or even like kale juice. <laughs> yeah. If you combine kale and beet juice, then I think uh, probably 20% of people will throw up if you try to cook it down. So, you know, put something in it. It doesn't matter if you put cream or honey or I don't know what, what people put in their shakes, but make it taste good because then you'll drink it more often. So that can be like your pre-workout right there. You just grind up some beets and kale and honey. <laughs> yeah, that's, that will make you more healthy, but I don't know if you're going to keep drinking it after a week or two. Yeah. What about uh, branched-chain amino acids? Because that's another one that people usually take on a daily basis for muscle gain. Um, so again, I think BCAs for 90 95% of people are a bad idea. Um, simply because they cost a lot more than other protein powders, and those protein powders have BCAs in them. So it's not like BCAs are some unique magical amino acid. Whey protein in a you know given 30 gram serving has a ton of BCAs in it. So the reason why you might want to take BCAs is either if you work out fasted or if you're really jacked and you need more protein at very specific intervals during the day. Most people don't fall into those categories, so BCAAs is just completely wasted money. If you need more BCAAs, it means that you're vegan, basically. If you're vegan, you probably don't get enough BCAAs. Other than that, I've never seen anybody that specifically needs BCAAs, especially because they have to be flavored with something in order to make them taste good because unflavored BCAAs taste like complete shit. Yeah. Actually, I take um, like the pill form of uh, branch chain amino acids. Is that any better or is that just tear down the quality of the uh, amino acids? I'd say that it's actually worse, not because quality-wise, but just because pills are more expensive than powders for BCAAs plus um, if you're already swallowing, you know, let's say that somebody's uh, capacity is I can I can swallow five or ten pills a day and not get annoyed or, or accidentally choke. Spend your swallowing quota on other pills because swallowing four to six to eight BCA pills because it takes a lot of pills to get enough BCAs. Um, experiment with other stuff that might be more useful that is not in powdered form. Um, there's almost no reason to take powder or pill BCAs. Gotcha. Now, what would you recommend for like now age category? So like say someone's in their 20s or someone in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, what supplements they should be focusing on based on their like age group as they go through life? So if you're in your 30s or 40s and you're a male, make sure you get enough zinc and magnesium. Um, if you're just a normal person, then make sure you have your uh, sleep down before you take any supplement. So whether you have to take melatonin, whether uh, you need to take valerian or whatever works for you, most sleep aids only work for a certain percentage of people except for melatonin, which works for most people. But figure out what works for you, normalize your sleep, and then work on other supplements because sleep is the most important thing. So once you're done with those things, nobody needs a supplement, but it's it's okay to take supplements. So um, I, I'd say fish oil is not high on the list. Looking at your vitamin intake and mineral intake through one of those tools I mentioned before and then supplementing accordingly is a, is a decent way to go at least until you start getting those things through food. So like selenium is a decent supplement to take, but you could also get selenium through things like certain shellfish or Brazil nuts or other sorts of foods. 
Um, and then if you work out a lot, you know, creatine is a good supplement to take. Sometimes beta-alanine is uh, okay if you've tried a lot of other things. But there's no core supplements that most people should take. It always depends on what your medical or health issues are. There's nothing I'd recommend that everybody takes. Now, is there like one standardized, like say blood test, or is there certain tests that you should think about taking to kind of see if you're deficient in anything, or where should you go to even get that done? So I wouldn't recommend getting a vitamin and mineral test. Um, it's been hyped up a lot recently in the past few years. Um, I, I don't have anything against the authors that promote companies where you can get that tested because it won't hurt you and it could reveal a deficiency. But um, it's it's always good to get your vitamin D tested if you haven't already. So your primary care physician can order one for free and they almost always will do that if you ask them. Um, so for example, I got my vitamin D tested for the first time maybe 15 years ago, and I have been taking multi for years, and I tested quite low in vitamin D, uh, well below the threshold for sufficient vitamin D intake, and I didn't know why, and I still don't know exactly why, uh, but people differ in their um, responses to vitamin D supplements because of genetics and other reasons. So um, get your vitamin D tested. If you're going to get another test, get tests for inflammation, like um, high, sensi high sensitivity CRP or other tests because that will tell you if you have a general um, health problem or not. But other than that, you usually don't need to get major tests. If you're a bit overweight and you're having sleep issues, then get a sleep apnea test. But, but don't pay a ton of money to get random tests done. What about those uh, blood allergy tests that naturopaths uh, sometimes prescribe? Yeah, so that's another waste of money. Um, if you're going to a naturopath and they order a bunch of tests including that, then go to a different naturopath because IgE testing is not sensitive for food allergies. It's not sensitive for subclinical food allergies. Um, it's, it's something that picks up a ton of false negatives. So like I'm allergic according to that kind of testing to everything, to like milk, to chocolate, to cotton, to whatever, to everything, um, which is not true because unless I have some very subtle reaction that will never be picked up, um, those things are really just for making money. Now, a way to tell if you do have a food allergy is going to an allergist and getting a skin prick test, doing a food elimination diet for a week or two or more, um, and then testing what your reactions are when you reintroduce certain foods. So for example, there is no test for nightshade foods like um, peppers and tomatoes, eggplants, and that kind of thing. But um, you can test yourself by eliminating those foods for a week and then reintroducing them uh, very quickly. So if you don't have any for a week or two or more, because sometimes it takes longer, and then you get like a, a spicy sausage pizza with extra sauce and you have no reaction, then it was a nightshade. But if you do have a reaction, then in like 1% or whatever of people, nightshades can be a huge deal. They can contribute to just feeling crappy or arthritis or a variety of other issues. So it really is a, a personal testing thing, not a food allergy testing thing. Yeah, because even for myself, I remember, you know, hearing about it and I got the test done like way back. I can't even remember when. It was probably at least six or seven years ago. And it like told me that I was allergic to everything and all I could eat was like squash and hemp. And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're like doomed to a life of crappiness basically if you listen to those. So um, luckily, 
the evidence behind them is very, very, very weak. Um, and pretty much every allergist knows just to poo-poo those tests because they cost a lot of money and they don't do anything. Yeah, I like the idea of like the elimination diet because then you can actually play detective on your own body and kind of figure out what and what not to eat. And sometimes just doing that will hit you know, something and uh, you'll see the benefit in the long run. Yeah, self-experimentation, other than optimizing your sleep and reducing stress, is probably one of the most important things I could ever harp on. If you self-experiment, you'll find things out about your body that your doctor will never be able to find out through testing. Yeah, I think um, maybe it was like Precision Nutrition that did this, where they made like a PDF file of um, like their like simple elimination diet where you take certain food groups one by one every, I think, two or three weeks at a time and then you kind of see how your body reacts and I think the, the first one was like you take out all citrus fruits for two weeks see how you feel if you don't feel any different it's probably not that one and then you kind of just move through each one and then see what the triggers are yeah if um if instead of getting testing people started at let's say like the times I've worked with patients I'd say the the hierarchy of things that might have a, a adverse effect or dairy and gluten-containing products like wheat or whatever are not bad at all, but for a sizable portion of the population, they're sensitive to them either because they were born sensitive or they have gut issues that made them sensitive or whatever. So if you eliminate dairy and then gluten or combined and you go two, three, four weeks and then you feel different, it's huge. It can affect your life. And then go on from there. You know, Citrus is somewhere in the middle there. Um, <clears throat> you can go down to to extremely random foods, and some people have sensitivities to foods that neither you or I would ever think of. But once you do that systematically, let's say for a period of three months, then you will know how your body reacts, and you'll have a food log. You'll have a log that says, one day I ate a pizza with cheese and with wheat, and then the next day I felt bad. I did that again a couple of weeks later, and I felt bad again. Now. That is correlation, but it also means that you can be rest assured if you eat pizza again, there's something in it that will affect your body. So that can apply to not just foods, but to everything. Like I was outside on a hike, you know, I felt great afterwards. If you're on a hike another week and you felt great afterwards, go on a hike every week because you'll feel great. So it can, it can be foods, it can be habits, it can be medications, you know, whatever. Um, always self-experiment, that should be a mantra. Yeah, like for myself personally, like I find that, you know, if I eat like a sandwich and it's not whole grain, but kind of like the white bread, my stomach gets so bloated and I feel so lazy and tired after it. I'm like, probably not the best choice for me. Yeah. And it's something that can have effects that you don't know. So for example, people don't know all the cute effects of fried foods. People know that fried foods uh, can have certain toxins in them uh, because of the high temperature frying process. And researchers know that fried foods can be bad for long-term health because of cardiovascular health. But I had a friend who many, many years ago told me when he eats fried foods, he feels that uh, his throat is congested and some other symptoms. And I basically just told him, you know, there's no reason why that would happen. It must be placebo effect. Now, you know, fast forward 10 or 15 years, 
And I wish I could go back and tell myself not to be so dismissive because just because there's a lack of studies about something doesn't mean it's not true. And I can see why it's possible that certain things in fried foods might cause different people to feel differently because we don't all have the same physiology going from our mouth out down to our intestines. So there's there's no being said why one person might feel fine eating, you know, fried chicken wings and one person might feel really crappy. We just don't know and we might not know for years. Definitely. So I just realized that the first 10 minutes or so didn't record, but I think we just talked about um, sleep and how to, like, what supplements could uh, help that. If you don't mind just saying that one more time, that would be awesome. <laughs> okay. Um, so... For sleep supplements, I'd say always try melatonin, especially sustained release, if you need to sleep for something the next day. So, for example, if you're at a conference, if you're going to work and you're going to have a hard day and you're just having a lot of acute sleep issues, take sustained release melatonin because sometimes normal melatonin makes you wake up again about, you know, let's say two hours after you fall asleep. Take it, but only take it knowing that it's a band-aid solution. Some people take melatonin for you know weeks, months, or years. It, it's not good. It means there's an underlying issue, and you're getting around it using something that it's probably not bad for you in the long run, but could be. You know, it is a hormone. So aside from that, work on your sleep issues either um, using light-oriented things or habit-oriented things. And by light, I mean blue light is something that causes stimulation and alertness. Um, and if you get rid of blue light or have low levels, like um, with very, uh, very low level incandescent uh, lights or candles or that kind of thing, then that produces, that helps your pineal gland produce melatonin. Um, and you really have to do it gradually as bedtime comes. So you can't just be like, oh, uh, it's five minutes before bed, I'm going to cut off the blue light. You can't just start producing melatonin right away. But you can wear blue light blocking glasses. You can use candles. You can um, put a screen in front of your computer that you, you buy online. You can do a bunch of random things like that. Uh, but probably the most important thing is to shut your mind off. So if you find yourself checking your email um, for the minutes before bed, then you're going to have anxiety about work. You're going to think about things you shouldn't be thinking about. What you should maybe do is do breathing exercises, maybe even read books, um, at least books that make you relax, you know, not, not books that are uh, horror novels or something like that. So working on sleep, I'd say work on your habits, on your light, and record your sleep habits. Um, if you have an Android or, um, or iPhone, then download a sleep app and see what your sleep cycles are like, and that can help you see what your sleep quality is actually like rather than just how you feel. Do you think those uh, sleep cycle apps actually work, and like, do they do anything at all? Yeah, so the sleep apps are actually quite good, but you have to be smart about them. So if you put your phone with the sleep app on your bed and it doesn't tell you much, then half the time the problem is that you have a full mattress. If you have a, a Tempur-Pedic or a copycat mattress, then you don't bounce enough for your sleep app to know when you're moving or not. So really the gold standard is, well, the real gold standard is an actigraph. So when I was in college, uh, it was before smartphones and I bought a super expensive sleep watch. Um, and they use sleep watches to do at home actigraphs for people to see if they have sleep apnea. But for some reason I, 
I was wasting my work study money and I was like, I'll just buy this random sleep watch. And that's when I first found out what my sleep cycles were like. So, you know, now many years later, all of that technology is encapsulated in our phones. So if you download a sleep app, if you get like an armband and you put your uh, phone in the armband or if you put it on your on your leg or thigh even, then you can see what your sleep cycles sleep cycles are like because that will fairly accurately tell you when or when you're not moving and when you're not moving then you're you're in REM sleep so um, it doesn't have to be exact they can at least just tell you when you're moving or not which gives you enough information to tell you when your sleep cycle started and when it stopped and the total length of your REM sleep which is also quite useful. I also think people kind of overlook like the whole bedtime routine and. Uh... Recently, I just watched a little clip of a doctor on the news talking about, you know, when you were a child, your parents would take at least 20 minutes before bed to, like, read you a story, take a a bath for you, and, like, cuddle with you and make sure you're relaxed. And then now, like, we just, you know, start emailing people, like, last minute right before we go to bed, and then you wonder why people don't have enough sleep. Yeah, people don't seem to... It's not... It's not great to always have, uh, what's it called, Um, when you think back to what times were like hundreds of years ago um, and then idealize that for no reason. Modern life is great, but if you just take a second to think back to even our grandparents' age, um, in the U.S. before 1950, something like almost half of households, or maybe before 1930, almost half of households didn't have reliable light bulbs or something like that, which means that as the sun set, you would have to find things to do. And things to do are like listen to music or play music on your piano or talk. Um, And then as there ended up being no light, there's just nothing you can do to stimulate your mind very much, which means your mind is automatically unwinding. Now we have the opposite of that. Now when you come home, you unwind by watching TV, and then when sleep time comes, you're like, ooh, maybe I should check my email, and you start revving up again. So we're really uh, the inverse of what we should be doing for many of our natural cycles, which means take a second of your, of your day and think about whether it really is what humans do or what they don't do. Gotcha. One more question from a uh, person, I think it was on Twitter. They're asking me about, um, I don't know if you saw it, but it was like one of those wine studies that, you know, like glass of wine equals an hour of uh, exercise, apparently. Like, what did you even read that? What's your opinion about it? Yeah. So interesting thing about that is people's responses to wine is highly dependent on your genetic makeup. So there's a gene that is correlated with improvement of cardiovascular risk from drinking red wine. And then the variations on that gene are associated with no change. So what that means is that if you're gonna drink specifically just to have cardiovascular improvements, don't do it. But if you like the taste of alcohol, you like the way it makes you unwind, um, social situations, then drink. Now that being said, if you have a history of heart disease, and if you need something to like boost your HDL or whatever, then sure, a glass of red wine every few days or every day might be okay. But don't think of red wine as a health food product because you can get other beneficial phytochemicals from drinking like grape juice. I think grape juice is completely underrated. First, because I love grape juice. It's so, you know, 
when I was a kid, when I would drink Welch's grape juice, it was the closest thing I could get to Kool-Aid without drinking artificial Kool-Aid. So grape juice just tastes so good and has actually research behind it for things like cognition, then why not drink grape juice? But yes, if you like wine, drink wine, but don't do it because it's healthy. So you're saying we should have beet juice and kale pre-workout and grape juice post-workout. <laughs> yeah, three juices a day. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you if you need convenience, juice is great. Juice is not the devil. Um, but whole, whole fruits and whole vegetables are also great. Some people, especially if they're starting to eat healthy, cannot handle, you know, a big ass salad every day because it can hurt your gut, make you constipated or diarrhea or, you know, take your pick. But a little bit of juice every now and then is totally okay. And if you need to make your grape juice taste good for health benefits, that's okay too. Gotcha. Okay. Last one. Um, greens powder. What do you think about that? Is that even worth it or should you just eat your vegetables? So kind of like some of those other things, I think if you're transitioning for the first time to a healthy diet, go ahead with the with the greens powder or green juice, especially if it's on sale. That being said, there's nothing magical about those greens. What they do is dehydrate things. It's kind of like freeze drying um, and then taking away all the water. But part of the reason why fruits and vegetables are good is because they make you feel full. If the stomach senses or if the intestines sense that there's stuff in it, like soluble fiber making gels, it releases hormones that make you feel good and could be good for long-term health. You don't get that from greens powder. So greens powder is not bad at all, but it's basically old dehydrated vegetables and fruits. So, you know, not bad at all, not necessarily great for anything. Um, that being said, there have been studies on like uh, freeze-dried mango helping blood sugar. So freeze-dried is actually something that I like a lot as a snack, like freeze-dried mangoes from Trader Joe's, which unfortunately I think you guys don't have in Canada, no. um, is actually something that could be healthy. But the greens powder, I think, is just overpriced. Perfect. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your wisdom. Um, it's my, my pleasure. If you can just tell everybody like where they can find you online, if you have any like speaking engagements, any book or anything that's happening in your life, let us know. Yeah, so uh, find me at examine.com. If you want to contact me, uh, there's a contact link there. I respond to every message and I read everything. Um, if you're interested in research, check out our uh, research guide, examine.com, Research Digest. Uh, we basically only make money uh, everything on the website is free, so we only make money selling additional research, more in-depth stuff. Um, we don't make a ton of money, so buy our products if you like our free stuff. Um, and you know, listen to more podcasts. I like being on podcasts because I listening. I like listening to podcasts. People who are good at podcasting, like yourself, um, really interview people that can help you directly with your health. Um, just listening to a podcast in your car ride. So. Um, support us, support podcasts, and do self-experimentation. Those are my three recommendations. Hey guys, hopefully you enjoyed my interview with Kamal Patel from examine.com. Again, if you have any questions, feel free to email me at rafael, R-A-F-A-L, at empowerhp.ca. Um, again, like I said before many times, please rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast. Tell all your friends and family, and that's it until next week.